We are studying some of the most overlooked words of Jesus. The reason to do this series is you see red letters in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The words of Jesus are often printed in red in many of your Bibles. And then you don't see much throughout the rest of the New Testament. And then tucked away in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to John and says, write these letters to seven of the churches in what's modern day Turkey. And he, he has some important things to say. Now, if you remember the timeline, one of the really interesting things about this is those churches started, most of them, when the apostle Paul, Paul was, uh, you know, became a believer and he took off and he starts preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, how to follow him, how to obey him, and churches start. And when I say churches start, I mean communities of believers begin being transformed and living their lives to follow Christ in all of these towns. That happened in the 50s AD. So think 30 or 33 is the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul then becomes a Christian shortly after. And so he travels in like 53 to 57 AD is when he's in this part of the world. Fast forward now, the book of Revelation the last book in your New Testament, is written about 95 A.D., so literally 40 years later, a generation later. So this is Jesus talking to maybe the second-generation Christians in all of these cities. So let's take a look at the geography of this. If you remember, our, we started in Ephesus. Jesus had things to say to the church in, uh, in Ephesus. Switch this around a little bit. There we go. In Ephesus, and then went to Smyrna, on up to Pergamon, then down to Thyatira. Again, there are a lot of cities here and a lot of churches, but these seven are the ones that he wrote to. And then Sardis, and those were the first five, and we've covered those, and he has a specific message for each one of those churches that also tend to appeal uh, and apply to us. And so in this lesson, he writes the final two letters to the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea. By the way, this route, I know that you can't see the geography of this, the valleys, the rivers as well, that's a Roman postal route, meaning the Roman Empire would deliver, this is a rural route, how many people ever had a rural route address? Oh, excellent. You know, we're in Oklahoma, that's probably why. But so you know what I'm talking about, right? So they actually made, not, there are roads here as well, but they also just had routes and they had uh, kind of think Pony Express. You know, they used to have little outposts with fresh horses. This is, a, this is a Roman postal route. And so one of the reasons is this is the order you would typically visit these churches. So writing a letter to these seven churches. Let me pause before we get into the last two to just remind you of a couple of themes. We see some really similar themes. What are the churches in 95 AD struggling with? Well, there are a couple of themes that jump out at us. One, Jesus says over and over, he says to them, he uh, do not compromise with the culture. Do not compromise the truth of the gospel by entering into sexual immorality and idolatry. 
In other words, sexual immorality was part of the worship of pagan gods. And idolatry would be offering some kind of allegiance to pagan gods in addition to, to Jesus. And so you see this theme of avoiding compromise and holding on to the truth. Most of these churches are being persecuted by Jews or by the pagans who are worshiping pagan gods. And at the, by this time, even the Roman government is persecuting Christians. So persecution is a theme. And when you get social pressure or persecution, you're tempted to kind of compromise your beliefs so that you can escape that social ostracism or the economic uh, marginalization or even the governmental persecution. Similar things happen to us as well. And so what you're seeing, the second theme is there were a lot of false teachers. And Jesus calls out some false teachers and he says some very harsh things. He says, you're teaching my servants to participate in sexual immorality and to participate in idolatry. He says, if you do not repent, I will strike you dead. In other words, you will be judged for this. This is serious. He's talking to Christians now. He said, you're teaching the wrong thing. You are teaching this compromise with the culture. Well, the same things happen in our culture. We have pressure from our world to conform to whatever the societal norms are. If you're in North Korea, you have pressure to stop worshiping because it's illegal. If you're in Saudi Arabia, you have pressure to stay in your little churches and do not talk about Jesus outside your churches. In America, it looks more like a rising social ostracism, uh, beginning to get a little bit economic. I mean, if you own a cake shop, that's economic impact to you, right? So I'm, my point is, is that the same kinds of things are happening. And those are some themes of what the Christians were uh, dealing with then. False teachers then, they weren't coming in and saying Jesus isn't Christ. They weren't saying, hey, we're not Christians anymore. What they were saying was, I know I'm off on a tangent, but this is really important because these letters are very relevant. What they were saying was, you can worship Jesus, be a good Christian, and you can still do this. You can still go make the ritual sacrifice at the temple. You can still be part of your union or your guild at that time, and you can still do the banquets, and you can do all the stuff. It's okay, and you can be a good Christian. Same thing today. What you see today is the same kind of an accommodation. What we see today is it's a little different, as you'll see teachers all of a sudden come up with an interpretation of something in the Bible that apparently Christians for the last 2,000 years have totally gotten wrong, right? And not only that, it just coincidentally happens to coincide with what the culture would like for us to believe. That's the form that that takes today. You'll see it with things like uh, greed. You'll see it with the idea of redefining what love is that you know, Christians believe in love and use the definition of the culture instead of the definition that God has. Sexual immorality, human sexuality. It's very much a, hey, we figured out the Bible says something different than what Christians thought for 2,000 years. They were so wrong. Oh, and it just turns out that that's exactly what goes along with our culture. And so the same thing was happening in 95 AD. So as we dive into this, I want you to realize it's just really relevant. Well, Philadelphia, is the first church we're going to talk about, but we're not going to talk much about Philadelphia. Here's why. Philadelphia was a little church, and it was experiencing a lot of persecution from the Jews. 
But Philadelphia is one of the two churches in the seven that has nothing negative said about it. Has nothing negative said about it. But before we jump in, let me just show you a couple of pictures of modern day Philadelphia. There are not much archaeology there, and the reason is there's a town on top of it, a modern town. And I don't know why, but homeowners just don't like it if you tear down their houses so you can dig archaeological digs. Who, who figures, you know? This is interesting from, this is a Byzantine. Byzantine era, by the way. So you've got first century, like 95 AD, and that is a uh, Roman era. When you get to the fourth century, think, uh, well, think early 400s. Now, all of a sudden, the Roman Empire is starting to fall. Right, And so you get a lot of paganism, and the church in that era is called the Byzantine era. And that's because the capital of the Roman Empire moves, basically, to Turkey. But this is some massive pillars from a church from about 600 A.D. There is, uh, in Philadelphia, there's a fortress from the Byzantine era up on one of the high places there. And then... I don't think you have these in your neighborhood, but this is great. This is just a neighborhood in the modern town, and in the back are ancient sarcophagi. Now, so what a sarcophagus is, is it's this stone uh, contained, think of a casket, it's a stone casket. And if you were rich, you could have a sarcophagus. These are not uber rich because they don't have a lot of carvings, but you obviously have to have some money to get that, that kind of a sarcophagus, and they would put dead bodies in there, and archeologists will, you know, learn as much as they can. This is just in a neighborhood in Philadelphia. It's like, oh yeah, I'm using that as a shed. It's a, you know, 1,400-year-old sarcophagus. So that's Philadelphia. It's kind of ancient stuff in the middle of a, uh, of a new town. Well, here's the letter. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, Jesus says. These are the words of him who is holy and true, Jesus, who holds the key of David, Messiah. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. It's a small church, but notice this. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, you've heard that phrase once before, who claim to be Jews, but they are not. They are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, by the way, this phrase is in every one of the, of the seven letters. The one who overcomes or endures, I will make a pillar uh, in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's just break down a couple of things. First, he simply says, look, I know that you are having a difficult time. I know you're small, you don't have a lot of strength, but you have been faithful. You have kept my word. You have not bowed to the pressure to deny my name or uh, add other gods and worship other gods as well. You have been faithful to me. 
The synagogue of Satan and the Jews, very interesting. So the Jews were very much uh, hostile to Christians. By this time, they're very hostile. And we've talked about how Jews would then, they saw Christians as heretics. They said, look, you, you really think that Jesus is the Messiah. We don't think Jesus is the Messiah. And plus, you say he's the Son of God, and we just think that's awful. You know, that, We don't even think the Messiah is going to be the Son of God. And so what they would do is they would turn the Christians into the authorities. And so they would be punished, or they would go to the job and say, hey, you know, old Bob's a Christian over there. You know what bad citizens they are. They only worship one God. They won't even worship the emperor. I think you should fire Bob. Give him a bad appraisal, you know, next time. And by the way, no raises for him. And so, seriously, you would get this kind of persecution of, in various kinds. Sometimes it was physical. There, at this time, there were Christians being killed for their faith. But most of the time, it was ostracism at this point. It's going to get worse as time goes on. The interesting thing about the Jews, I'm going to pluck a couple of things from outside the Bible here. So the Jews here, though, are not particularly good Jews. Remember it says the synagogue of Satan, those are Jews, but they're really not. They're liars. The Jews in Jerusalem thought the Jews over here in Turkey, it's called Phrygia, is, is this area, uh, thought that these Jews were not good Jews. They were secular Jews. They were way in love with money. They were, they were doing some things they shouldn't be doing either. And so God's like, they're not even good Jews, and they're, and they're punishing you. Ignatius is one of the early Christian church fathers, and he wrote uh, this letter to the congregation in Philadelphia. He says, if anybody preaches Judaism to you and tries to get you uh, converted, uh, don't listen to him. Uh, it's better to hear Christianity from a, from a Jew than it is Judaism from an uncircumcised person. But if anybody comes to you not preaching Jesus Christ, then they are open graves. In other words, they're cursed. In other words, there's an effort and a pressure to say to these Christians, you need to come back into the Jewish fold, come back in the synagogue, because by the way, Christians have been kicked out of the synagogues. If you're a Christian, you can't go to the synagogue. And so, for example... Uh, if you were, became a Christian, but your parents were still Jewish, you couldn't go to church with them. You couldn't go to the potlucks. You know, you couldn't do anything in the synagogue. You were kicked out of the synagogue. So there's this, this conflict with the Jews. The uh, one thing we need to talk about, because somebody surely is going to ask this question. Uh, the idea that he says, first of all, you have kept my word, this idea of faithfulness, and you have not denied my name. And since you have kept my command to endure, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Okay, two ways to look at this. What is he keeping them from? So let's go to the, what's called the dispensational view of the book of Revelation. So think left behind. So the, the model that that, though, that particular view of the book of Revelation understands is chapters 1 through 3, are letters to the seven churches. I mean, Jesus literally is talking to Christians in 95 AD. Chapters 4 through 19 is the tribulation. It is a literal set of things that are going to happen in a seven-year period, sometime in the future, uh, in the future for them, and obviously still in the future for us, a seven-year period of tribulation. And so, 
If you look at it that way, that would be understood as the hour of trial or testing or tribulation that's going to come on the whole world. So in the end times, with that view, then you're going to get seven years of God judging the earth, and you're going to get you know, the waters turning bitter and stars falling from the sky and the Antichrist coming and war on the earth, you know, the whole tribulation thing. And so that's going to happen in a seven-year period. And so what, if you understand the Bible that way, what he's saying is you have been faithful. I'm going to spare you from that. So people that believe in a rapture before the tribulation, which is probably the most common uh, view of Revelation in America anyway, they look at that verse and they say, see, that's kind of evidence of that. Christians who have been faithful will be raptured, taken away, and spared living through the seven years of tribulation. That's not the only view of that, but that's one of the views. And so this is one of the verses that is at least suggestive of the idea of a rapture before the tribulation. Does that make sense? What if you don't see it as evidence of the rapture? Maybe he's just talking to Philadelphia and saying, I'm going to spare you from uh, these trials. Another view is that in, in John chapter 17, while Jesus is with his disciples, last night that he's alive, John chapter 17 is just a big long prayer. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and not just the one he has then, he's praying for you and me. And he says this in John 17, about verse 15. He says, Father, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but I pray that you would preserve them through their trials. So the big question here is, is Jesus saying, I'm going to take you out of the world so you won't experience the tribulation? Or is he speaking to all of us and saying, I'm not going to necessarily save you from every trial. I'm going to be with you through every trial. Either way you want to interpret that, that's good news for Christians. The, the key idea, and then I'm going to move on from Philadelphia, the key idea here is if you're a small church or if you're a small person, and when I say small person, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. What I mean is if you're like me, you think of yourself as, you know, what am I really in the big scheme of what God is doing through all the centuries, etc.? I know God loves me. I know God loves you. I know God is cares for you and is involved in your life. I mean, he knows every hair on your head. He knows who you are. He knows where you're going. I understand all of that, but sometimes I feel like I'm not very significant. I'm not doing anything big in the kingdom of God. This letter is written to us when we feel that way, and it's written to all the small churches and all the small church pastors in, in the world. And it is simply this, is that God is far more interested in faithfulness than success. God is far more interested in faithfulness than success. I would go so far as to say God is interested in faithfulness. He is not terribly interested in success. God wants our faithfulness. You can be pastoring, you can be attending a congregation of 50 people. Now, would you like to spread the word and see more people come to Christ? Of course you would. But it's not measured by that. It's measured by how faithful we are. And so the wonderful thing that he's saying to them is, you are not very strong and you are enduring persecution, but you are faithful. I'm going to give you a crown of eternal life and I know who you are. And when you persevere and you will be with me when we overcome. That's just a powerful message, I think, to us. Okay? Philadelphia.
Let's move on. I want to talk to you about Laodicea. Laodicea, Philadelphia had nothing negative to say about it. Laodicea has nothing positive to say about it. Laodicea is one of the two. There are two churches that have nothing negative. There are two churches that have nothing positive. And Laodicea is one that has nothing positive. I want to show you on this map. I put another map on here, but basically here's where we are in Laodicea. This map just doesn't show you what I call the tri-cities. And this one here is on your handout. But you notice those three cities that are close together? Uh, on the top, you have Heropolis, H-I-E-R-A-P-O-L-I-S, Heropolis. It is about six miles from Laodicea. Then you also have Colossae. Colossae is about 11 miles from Laodicea. Well, the three of them had a joint chamber of commerce, and they were the tri-cities, and seriously, they cooperated with each other. They're in what's called the Lycus Valley. I'll show you the geography here in a minute, but they're literally all together in a little valley, and they were kind of sister cities, if you will. Laodicea is the most politically important city of those three. The one you know the best, though, is Colossae. The town of Colossae had a letter written to it by the Apostle Paul. So now we're back in the 50s AD, and after the churches started there, he wrote a letter to the people who lived in Colossae. It's called Colossians. It's the letter to the Colossians in your New Testament. And it's got an interesting little piece. This is the tail end of that letter that was written. The guy who delivered that letter was named Tychicus, and he took two letters with him. If you remember, I told you that uh, the route that you would come in here, I'm going to go back to the map for a second. You would sail into Ephesus, which is what Tychicus did. He's got these two letters. He has a letter to the Christians in Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. That's the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Then he travels over here to this area because he also has a letter to the church in Colossae and it's Colossians. And so at, in that letter, uh, you have this really kind of interesting uh, tail end. At the very end, he usually greets people. And here's the thing, he says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. Tychicus is from this area. He went with Paul to become an evangelist. Paul sends him back with the letter. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose, this is to the Colossians, that you may know about our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Onesimus is a slave who ran away. He lived in Colossae. He was a slave. He was not a Christian. He ran away, made his way to Rome, where Paul is in prison, by the way, when he writes these letters, and he somehow becomes a Christian, and he somehow gets to meet Paul. And he says, Paul, I have to confess, I've sinned. I mean, I ran away from my master. I mean, I violated the law, and I'm, Christians are supposed to try to follow the law. He says, but the, it's death penalty. If I go back, my master will kill me. And he says, uh, well, really? He says, yeah, who's your master? a guy named Philemon. And he says, well, Philemon's a Christian. He won't kill you. And so he sends Onesimus back to Colossae, sends him back to his master, Philemon, and writes a little note to Philemon 
That's in your New Testament too. It's called the book of Philemon. And so Tychicus and Onesimus take off on a journey to deliver these letters and get Onesimus back to make things right with Philemon. So now when you read that little book of Philemon, that'll be really powerful. This is Paul in prison writing to Philemon saying, hey, I would appreciate it if you don't kill Onesimus. Just not what we Christians do with each other. Okay, great little letter. All right, moving on. He says, they'll tell you everything that's happening here, how I'm doing. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings. So does Mark, wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. Jesus was a common name. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning he comes from Colossae, uh, and a servant of Christ Jesus, he's a Christian, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. So he, Paul, has, he understands these three cities are really close together. So he's writing to the Colossians, but he says he, he prays for the people of his hometown area. Heropolis and Colossae as well. Uh, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as he traveled with Paul, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to all the brothers, meaning the Christians at Laodicea, and especially to Nympha, that's a Greek female name, and the church, the group of believers that meet in her house. After this letter has been read to you, See that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you read the letter that I sent to the Laodiceans. So we don't have every letter that Paul wrote. But this is kind of interesting because I want you to feel like this brings it into reality. This is not once upon a time. These are real things happening with real congregations. And so, uh, and th by the way, this is what happened. When you got the letter to Ephesians, somebody would copy it. They'd take off on this circuit. They'd take it to every town and they'd read it. To them. So the New Testament wasn't bound up and sold in Barnes and Nobles for a couple hundred years, right? But it was read all over the place. They would copy it and make sure all the churches had everything that was written by John and Peter and James and Paul. So that's Laodicea. Laodicea figures in the New Testament, and then it also figures as Jesus, 40 years later, is writing to it. So let me pause there and see what questions we have. What happened to the other letters that Paul wrote that we know about from their references but we don't have, and why are they not in our New Testament? What happened to the other letters that we know that Paul wrote, we know of at least two more that he mentions in the New Testament, but he had to have written many, many more letters. What happened to them? We do not know. They are not in existence. They probably were destroyed over time. I mean, let's face it, Christians were persecuted. The fact that this is what you got to remember. The fact that any of these letters survive is amazing because it was against the law to have a copy of one of these. So we do not know. So why are they not in the New Testament? Because we don't have them. The, the idea of understanding the New Testament is these are the documents that the Holy Spirit preserved to be brought down to us. And these are here for a purpose, to teach us lessons. The fact that uh, Jesus said other things that aren't written down. The Gospel of John says 
I said, I could write books and books about what Jesus said and did beyond this, but I wrote these things in the Gospel of John so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing that you might have eternal life. So God never intended to give us everything that Jesus said or everything that was written, but the, the ones that, uh, that he wrote other places, we do not have those. Good question. Which came first, Paul's letter to Colossae or the revelation mentioning Laodicea? Well, okay, so which came first? So the letter to the Colossians is coming in probably 60, 62 AD. This letter I'm about to read you from Jesus dictating to John is coming from about 95 AD, so much later. Now, the letter that Paul may have very well have written to Laodicea was probably written about this time, but we do not have that letter. And I would expect it said a lot of similar things to what the letter of the Colossians that we, that we do have. Good question. Well, let's look at Laodicea a little bit. There is a lot of archaeology in Laodicea because the city that's nearby is not on the site. So let me just show you a few things. This is a colonnaded street. You can envision in your mind, we've seen a lot of this before, a massive earthquake here in 60 AD and then a huge earthquake in 749 AD. It's kind of amazing anything is standing in this part of the world. And so that's a street. It's got columns all down the side. They would have had a top on them. There could have been shops and other things off to the side. And so it would have just been a really beautiful, colorful place. A little better picture of that in the sunshine. You can just see the white stone. Uh, That's rich. And when you came out of the uh, countryside, you would see these white marble uh, temples, and you would see these white columns, and it would have just been then color. Imagine color, all kinds of colorful awnings and things. It would have just been magnificent. This is a magnificent city. This is what's left of a theater. And notice it's built into the hillside so that if you're standing at the bottom, you know, you can hear from them. So this is uh, the remains of the theater in Laodicea. I want to do show you one thing. Remember I told you that uh, Heropolis is only six miles away. This is kind of on one side of the valley, and Heropolis is right over here on the other side of the valley, six miles away. I wish I had a better picture because I would love to show you some, a neat feature of Heropolis. I'm going to show you some things in Heropolis in a minute. But this, uh, they'll do some more excavation here eventually, and they will restore the pieces that aren't original, but that's a 2,000-year-old theater. Uh, temples. Here, there are a lot of temples in Laodicea. Laodicea is an interesting city. It was very loyal to Rome. So let me just tell you a couple things about this city. This city was very loyal to Rome all through the times when certain areas here are breaking away from Rome, but they stayed loyal. So they became a judicial and a banking center of this whole area. They were rewarded for their faithfulness with a lot of temples to the emperor, uh, temples to the gods and goddesses, Uh, They were, uh, again, like a judicial center. They were like the district courts were there. They were Wall Street for this whole area. I mean, they were the, uh, uh, you know, the options trading and the futures trading and all that happened here. It was a big banking center, so very rich city. Think of it as kind of like having Wall Street there as well. Uh, They had a medical school there. I know you think that they had medical schools then. They really did. Uh, It wasn't like ours, but... They were very interested in curing diseases. They had a medical school that was known 
for cures for ears and eyes. And they had a salve for eyes. Blindness, big problem in the ancient world because there's so many things can happen to your eyes. I mean, obviously glaucoma, things like that, but a lot of things can happen. Well, they had developed a salve that would cure a lot of things. I mean, you think about it, having pink eye, conjunctivitis was a big deal then. It's not like you can just go get, you know, some antibiotics and clear it up in a day. But they had this salve that was world famous coming from their medical school. So this was kind of a big metropolitan area. They were more important than Heropolis and more important than Colossae, but they were you know, all together as sister cities, if you will. Another temple, and you can just see how grand it would have been. So like I say, it's kind of amazing that anything is standing here at this point in time. Uh, another temple entrance. These are Roman baths. I mean, this is a city, this is the remains of the Roman baths. And, and if you've seen Roman baths before, that is the layout for Roman baths. They, they have a very specific layout. But the, so in other words, it's a very pagan city. It's a very Romanized city, Greco-Roman. A lot of pagan gods and goddesses uh, there as well. Hard place to be a Christian, frankly. Uh, this is the other theater in Laodicea. And you can see how uh, that's the stage down here. In Greek, that's called a skene, which is where we get our word scene, S-C-E-N-E. -E. And so they would do various scenes of a play there. And so this, uh, a lot of this is original. You can tell these are original stones here. As a matter of fact, it doesn't look like much of this has been reconstructed. So really in great shape. Let's go across the valley for a minute to Heropolis. This is the coolest thing in Heropolis. Uh, Heropolis is up on a hill on the other side of the valley, right? You know, so you go through the valley and up on a hill. And it's like a mile long. There are all of these formations, these limestone deposits. Heropolis had hot springs. You can even see some of this in Arkansas, but this is huge. It's magnificent. But these hot springs have limestone deposits in them, and it's just huge. And you can walk out there, you can, you know, it's just an amazing place to be. So needless to say, the medical school would use this. It was considered a, a healthful place to be. So they had a thriving little hot spa business going here. But it was just, it was just amazing uh, deposits. And when you are in Laodicea and you look across the valley, you can see these things gleaming in the sun. It's just a magnificent picture. But Heropolis had hot springs that had um, calcium carbonate in the water. Uh, Laodicea, and this is another thing you need to know before we dive into it. So they're a big banking center, really rich in Laodicea. Laodicea has no springs at all. So Colossae has good spring water. You know, I mean, they're bottling up, uh, you know, French water over there and selling it throughout the Roman Empire, comes from the springs of Colossae, good cold water. Here, they don't have cold springs, but they have hot springs. And even today, the locals will often let their water cool off a little bit before they drink it at Heropolis. So Laodicea built an aqueduct, and they would pipe their water in from here. And so they would get water out of Heropolis to come to Laodicea. So of the cities, the only thing it really didn't have going for it is it didn't have a natural water supply. So, with that background, let's jump into this letter, because there are just some really interesting things to talk about here. Laodicea 
He says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, let me just read the whole thing and then we'll come back. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is Jesus, like this is Jesus speaking to you. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you, literally, out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now he's talking to the Christians. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. By the way, you'll see this a lot. Everywhere he talks to churches that need to turn back to Christ, he'll say, repent, change your ways. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So let's talk about lukewarm. This is probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. But it's not quite as clear as you would think what he's talking about here. So let's analyze it a little bit. First of all, in this entire letter, Jesus is making a very clever play. You could even call it mildly sarcastic. It's a clever play on the, the circumstances in Laodicea and then making a spiritual point from it. So he says, first of all, he says, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. Well, if you think about the water supply in Laodicea, by the time it, that hot springs water traveled the six miles, it was just room temp. It was just lukewarm water. You could go to Colossae and get cold water. You could take your tea bag and go to Heropolis and have hot water. But in Laodicea, you were just going to get room temp. You were just going to get lukewarm water. And worse than that, the fact that the water had this calcium carbonate in it, it wasn't the world's best water. You know, it's kind of like you drink it and you might spit it out. I mean, you needed to get used to drinking this water. It'll keep you alive, but it's not Perrier, okay? It's not really good stuff. So he says to them something that's true. Your water is neither hot nor cold. They go, I know, I hate that about this place. And he says, and you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And so, he says, I wish you were either one or the other. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. Uh, we'll come back in just a minute. I wish you were either one or the other, because that's kind of a key to what this means. He says, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is really interesting because what is Jesus really saying to these Christians in Laodicea? He says, I can't stomach you. That's not a good thing. Okay, I'm just saying, if Jesus comes to you and says, by the way, I can't stomach you, not good. You need to make this right. Okay, so, but that's what he's saying. He says, you are spiritually lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In fact, the word there is, uh, means vomit, and it's where we get our word emetic. And emetic is something that makes you vomit. And so that's that word. He basically says, I can't stand you. I can't stomach you. Well, that's really strong. Why? You're neither hot 
nor cold. Let me point out a couple of other things here. First of all, you notice in this letter what's not there. Nowhere in this letter, like in Philadelphia, does it say, I know you're being persecuted by the Jews. Big Jewish community in Laodicea. I know you're being persecuted by the Jews. That's not there. Just like is said in Pergamum, for example, I know you're being persecuted by the trade guilds and the pagans. It's not here. Other letters, it might say, I know that you are where Satan has his throne and you're being persecuted by the Romans. Not here. There's no persecution happening here. Why is there? You've got to ask yourself, why is there no persecution happening in Laodicea when there's persecution happening everywhere else? Whether it's the Jews or the pagans or the Romans, nobody's persecuting these people. Why is that? Well, this is kind of a, a clue. He says, you know what? You're neither hot nor cold. Now, hot, best way to understand this is you're on fire for God. In other words, your faith is vibrant and you are on fire for God. In other words, you are spreading the gospel, you are living the gospel, and you are on fire. If they were, they would be being persecuted. You're on fire for God. Cold is you don't know God at all. Because for, I don't think it's reasonable to think that Jesus would say, I'd rather you be hot or cold than what you are, and that is you're lukewarm Christians. Well, if cold you know, means that uh, that's not a good thing, but he's saying, I would rather you didn't even know the gospel than to be lukewarm. Now, that's a bold thing to say. because. But if you think about it, Jesus says, I can work with people that are on fire for God. In other words, that are actually living out, you following me, and you are serious about your faith, and you are willing to follow me even in the midst of difficulties. You're hot. Over here, you have people who are cold. It's like, I don't know who Jesus is. And he says, I can work with that too. Because let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And you read the book of Acts. And when you came into a place and you began to tell people that never knew Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled because of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. And you can live forever. And people were like, oh my gosh, I need to know more. What must I do to be saved? Jesus says, I can work with people that don't know me and I can work with people that are following me. What I can't stomach are people that say they know me and aren't following me. Does that make sense? That's what lukewarm is. He said, I would rather you be an unbeliever so you have a chance of starting to follow me than to be what I call an inoculated Christian. Inoculated Christian, and this is something that we've all been there, done that, so I'm not trying to point a finger. I'm just saying we need to be careful. What he's saying is, you have just enough Christianity. You've been vaccinated. You've got just enough Christianity to keep you from actually catching fire. And you've got just enough that you don't think you need to hear the truth. He said, I'd rather you were on fire or I'd rather you had never heard about me because both of them have a chance. You've been vaccinated. You think that you know Jesus Christ, but you don't. Does that make sense? That's scary. Because what Jesus is saying, I'd rather you never heard about me. Because there's a chance. But you've heard about me, and you just are lukewarm. You think you're self-sufficient. Look what else he goes on to say. And this is going to make sense of the rest of it. You say, I am rich. Well, they were. They were very affluent Christians. 
they were getting along in the culture. They weren't being persecuted. They were on the board of the Chamber of Commerce, and they were at the big party at the Temple to Zeus. And these Christians were like, hey, we're doing great. We're Christians, and we're prosperous. You say, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. That's true. Their building funds were always well-funded. Uh, their budget was always positive every year for the church. But look at what God says. He says, you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, he says, if you could see you with my eyes, you would realize you're not rich, you're not comfortable, you are blind and poor and naked. What does he mean? He says, when you look at you with spiritual eyes, you're bankrupt. Yes, you're rich, you got a great 401k, you got a great bank balance, but you're bankrupt spiritually. He says, I counsel you, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. What is gold refined in the fire? Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about your faith your trust, your faithfulness to God is like gold refined in a fire. It's of more value even than gold. He said, I would counsel you to start being faithful to me. That's better than all the gold that you have. And he goes on and he says, I would advise you to wear white clothes, to buy white clothes so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. We've talked about this before. In the book of Revelation, in fact, in all apocalyptic, uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature, clothes represent character. Clothes represent righteousness. You remember one of the others, we talked, he talked about some of you have soiled your clothes, meaning He's not talking about their clothes literally being dirty. He says, you've been worshiping the other gods. You've been going to the temple. And so now your righteousness is smeared. Remember we talked about James saying, keep yourself unpolluted from the idols of the world. Well, they weren't. And a metaphor for that is your clothes aren't clean. You've, you've soiled yourself by participating in the culture. He says, you think you have really nice clothes. I think you have very ugly clothes. I think you have very ugly spirituality said instead you need to be out there doing the works that I've set for you to do I'll give you clean clothes I'll give you white clothes if think about it if in the in the book of revelation if clothes dirty clothes ragged clothes mean you're spiritually lacking what do you think it means to be naked you know, you're spiritually dead I mean, he's, it's really a bad judgment that he's making on them, is that you're not faithful at all. And then, this is kind of a little sarcastic, you think you have the best salve in the world and you guys have the best medical care, you better ask me for some salve to put on your eyes because you are blind. You do not see the reality of what you're doing. You have so compromised your faith that I can't stomach you. I'd rather you weren't even believers. Then you have a chance. And so this passage about being lukewarm is powerful condemnation. And I think it's one that we should heed. We should think about that. And we should examine ourselves. And we should say, Lord, am I lukewarm? Am I still fervent to follow you? Am I still committed to follow you? Or have I become too complacent? Have I become too comfortable in my faith? When's the last time we took a risk of faith when we took a step out knowing that we could not do it on our own? Notice what these Christians were saying. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
We too are affluent, relatively speaking, in America. We certainly are affluent, and we as Christians are affluent relative to Christians in the world. And a lot of times we say, we're fine. We can fund what we need to fund. We can do what we need to do, and we're really not being persecuted all that much. Again, I'm not condemning us. I'm just saying we need to be careful that we don't do things that we can do in our own strength. Every now and then, we need to make sure that we're stepping out there and saying, God, this one's going to have to be you because I do not have the power to make this happen. I don't know what will happen when I approach my coworker and say, can I help you? Can I share with you uh, the truth in my life? I do not know what will happen in this marriage. I do not know what will happen in this with this relationship with my daughter or my son, God, I'm, I need to turn this over to you. That's that poverty of spirit, that being poor in spirit, that is relying on God. It's the exact opposite of what they were saying. It's, oh, we're fine, God. You can go help the other people. We're doing great. Jesus says, you're, you're not doing great. You're poor, you're blind, you're pitiful, and you're naked. So their wealth was, their material wealth was paired with a spiritual poverty. Now, is this saying material wealth is a bad thing? No, it's saying material wealth is a dangerous thing. Anything that will make you complacent in our faith, whether it's physical comfort, whether it's material wealth, whether it's anxiety, whether it's greed, whether it's uh, us versus them, you know, envy, jealousy, all of those things that the New Testament talks about, all of those things make you complacent. They turn you away from reliance on God to reliance on self. And so I think this is a really powerful message for us as well. One final thing here that I think is interesting. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I would say that the first part of this letter comes under the category of rebuke. I don't know if you guys have ever received, rebuke is an old word. It's kind of a churchy word. Rebuke is a real word to me. When I was uh, in, early in my career, so I'm working in a technology company, I'm in information systems, and so I'm a technical support guy. So like I work on the weekends, anything that goes wrong with millions of dollars of equipment, software basically, anything that goes wrong, they bring it to me, I figure it out, right? You figure out what's wrong with the, pro with the software, what's wrong with the programs, you get it running again so we can keep making money for the company. So this is a big deal. And I decided I was a big deal. You know, so I'd sit in my office, kick back there, you know, reading computer manuals and stuff. People would come in, bow at the door and say, you know, would you please solve this problem because we can't print bills, you know, and so we got a lot of money writing on this. And I would say, what did you bring? We brought you chocolate covered almonds. Very well, I'll take your offering. Come back in an hour, I will have your problem fixed for you. So that's kind of my job, seriously. Well, except the chocolate-covered almonds, but that would have been nice. But anyway, so they come in like, oh, please help us, please help us. So I decided, I'm a young guy, and I decide, yeah, I'm pretty hot stuff. Okay, so I had this really good boss. I hated him at the time, but he's a really good boss. And so he decided that I was getting a little too big for my britches. Everybody else noticed this, and I was basically becoming a Class A jerk. You know, I am a Laodicean, right? And so he writes me a letter, uh, because I'm working on the weekends, right? He writes a letter, he leaves it in my box, and I pick up this letter and I read it. It is the best chewing out I have ever gotten. 
He didn't call me names. He wasn't rude. He wasn't mean. He was very articulate. He was very educated. And when I got to the end, I felt that big. And I thought, at the time I thought, that is the best chewing out letter I have ever read. I mean, it was so good, I just got chewed out and I had to admire it. It's like, that was really good. And so I read this letter and I just stung like crazy. You know, he said, you have a lot of potential, but you're never gonna reach it as long as you keep doing this and you keep doing that. And you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so you just ding, you know, I'm just going smaller and smaller and smaller while I'm reading this letter, but it was really good. You know, he wasn't mad or mean. I could tell he believed in me, but I could tell I've really goofed up in a major way. So then I see him the next week, comes in, takes me to lunch on a weekend. This guy's great. He said, did you get my letter? I said, oh, I got your letter. And uh, he said, listen, the reason I wrote you that letter is I think you have a lot of potential and you are worth working with. And so at that time, I realized, and I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I said, uh, you're right, I got a lot to learn. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying here. That's that attitude. And, and to me, this is real. So the first part of this letter is, oh, you think you're hot stuff. You're actually poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Oh, you think you're great. You know what? You make me sick to my stomach. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying to them, right? And then he says, but I love you, and you can repent. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Be sincere and repent. I'm standing at the door knocking. I just want you to turn away from where you're going. Come open the door, and let's restore this relationship. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And to me, it's real because I've kind of been there, done that in a secular way, and I thought, that is a perfect example of this. But that's the way Jesus feels about you and me. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way before, but if you've ever sinned enough, if you've ever hurt people enough, if you've ever done anything so wrong that you feel like, man, I, I wouldn't forgive me. I've done things where I said, I would not forgive me for this. And you can feel pretty low. And when you do, I know this is going to sound crazy, this is the letter for you to read. Because these people have done things so bad, they are so far from Jesus Christ, and yet he says, I discipline the ones I love. So be earnest, turn around, and come back, because I'm knocking on the door. Isn't that just powerful, how much Jesus loves us, even in our rebellion? If we persist in that rebellion, he will judge us. And yet, he's knocking on the door saying, come back. Let me pause for a question or two, but as bad as this letter is, I love that part of this letter. Um, do the references to white clothes in Revelation uh, mean the same things as the wedding party clothes in Matthew 22? As the, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. As the wedding party clothing in Matthew 22? You know, that's a good question. So white clothing here, wedding clothing in Matthew 22, not exactly. Matthew 22 isn't apocalyptic. In other words, it's not the style of, of writing that intends to be very symbolic. Revelation wants to be symbolic. I mean, it's written in a way that's kind of obtuse. You kind of need to know the code a little bit. So here, clothes are always going to represent righteousness, character. Matthew 22 isn't necessarily that way. He's trying to make, Jesus is trying to make a different effect there. In other words, he's trying to then talk about giving you new clothes. So you could understand it in that way, but really that has more to do with the whole wedding feast idea. So similar maybe, but I think maybe a little bit different. 
Uh, is the word overcomes used in the same way in every place? Is the word overcome used in the same way in every place? In these seven letters, it is. The word for overcome, or it's translated overcome, what is this, the NIV? Uh, NIV is Nike. I mean, it's the word Nike. That's where Nike got its name from. Nike is uh, the word for victory in Greek, and Nike was the goddess of victory, and her symbol was a swoosh. Okay, I made that part up. Everything else is still true, though, but the swoosh, it was not a swoosh. But everything else is true. Nike means victory, and Nike became personified as the goddess of victory. And so this is a form of that word. So you can see the verb form is to be victorious, to overcome. And it carries the idea of persevere. In this context, how do you be victorious? I mean, does it mean you go beat up all the Jewish people and overthrow the Roman government? No, that's not what victory looks like here. Victory looks like being faithful, staying faithful even in the midst of the persecution. And that's why they translate it overcome, which is a good translation, or persevere to the one who perseveres, who stays faithful, even with all the pressure. So in the book of Revelation, that in these seven letters, it says this, everyone, and it means the exact same thing. To the one who, and it's not just talking to those seven churches, it's talking to you and me. To those of you who stay faithful despite all the pressures and all the enticements to go compromise the faith and the truth, to the one that overcomes, I will do these things. That word doesn't always mean exactly that everywhere it's used in the New Testament, but it does mean that everywhere in these letters. That's a great question. And that's a powerful idea, this idea of, of overcoming. Well, let me finish up and just say that in these seven letters, I would urge you to go back now, and I think you know enough about it to read it and just pull some uh, gems out of it. The, all the things that are written in the New Testament are written not just for the time. They were certainly written at the time, for the time, but they're also written for us. They've been preserved miraculously, literally, for us. And these words of Jesus to that second generation really resonate with me because we're, quote, second generation Christians. Yeah, I know, I realize we're 457th generation Christians, but we're far from the earliest believers but they're a generation away and we're generations away. And I think we have some of the same temptations that they have. So I hope this study's been useful to you. We're actually gonna touch on a few of the same topics. I wanna go back, we're gonna, August 21st, we're now off for two weeks. Our church doesn't have any Wednesday night activities for the next two weeks. But August 21st, we kick off. And I wanna look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. and. It is a letter that Paul wrote, now we're at 95 AD, we're gonna go back to about 60 AD, and there's a church there, and they're not doing well. And you know, one of the things they're not doing well is they've got a lot of political problems, they have a lot of problems with sexuality, they have a lot of problem with prosperity preachers, and they have a big old problem with faith healers. And Paul is writing to this church about the things that they need to correct you will be shocked how many hot topics are gonna to come up in Corinthians. So bring your friends who don't believe because we will really mix it up with the culture and the church and how do Christians get this wrong. So August 21st, we'll start talking about 1 Corinthians and it should be some fireworks. Thank you guys for being so faithful through this series. I appreciate you.